All right, ladies and gentlemen, please welcome tonight's guest moderator, Josh Tierengel, editor-in-chief of Bloomberg Businessweek, and tonight's guest, author Steve Stout. So it's uh, my pleasure to have Steve here. Uh, why don't you sort of get more specific about the concept of tanning? I know you want to read just something that might set it up. All right, no problem. <clears throat> the tale I'm here to tell is less about the music itself and more about the atomic reaction it created, a catalytic force majeure that went beyond musical boundaries and into the psyche of young America, blurring cultural and demographic lines so permanently that it laid the foundation for transformation. I have dubbed tanning. Hip-hop had come about in a time, in places, and through multiple innovative means that enabled it to level the playing field like no other movement of pop culture, allowing for a cultural exchange between all comers, groups of kids who were black, white, Hispanic, Asian, you name it. Somehow, this homegrown music resonated across racial and socioeconomic lines and provided cultural connections based on common experiences and values. And it turned it, in turn, it revealed a, generally, a generationally shared mental complexion. So, so that's tanning. And it's your term? Nobody else's? Nah, it was um, a term I coined um, from just my travels, leaving the record industry and then going from the record industry to the advertising business, I got a chance to see um, content being created that was coming from culture and then watch an advertising, uh, 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 the advertising business where you would try to visit culture and then create uh, commercial, commercial content in order to sell to consumers you, touching that culture. And I realized there was an issue there and they weren't speaking to kids culturally correct and they were missing the authenticity, and I felt like if I got involved and I got close enough to it, I could help make that translation happen, which is why I named my company that. And what they were missing was that the generation of kids that were coming up did not want to be spoken to in separate boxes. They actually had more in common than they had apart, and that's why I called it tanning, because the mental complexion was very similar. So to, to get a little bit more specific, when do you see tanning really beginning in earnest, when, when there's a real impact of hip-hop on pop culture? Well, I would say that, you know, the generation that was born into it, if you were born um, in, let's call it, uh, between 68 and 74, you were probably right at the right time in 84, 85, you were listening to music, you were involved in it, to see that when like Run DMC broke and they made King of Rock or when they went and they made Walk This Way and, and, and worked with Aerosmith, I felt like that was the moment in which the scale started to tip because MTV had played Run DMC in the day part. Day parting is where your video got into regular rotation. It was a period in time where MTV would not play rap music at all unless it was set in a format like your MTV raps period. But Run DMC got day parted like a rock record and they would play right next to Metallica or they'd play right next to Aerosmith. And when that took place, I felt like that was the shift uh, that, that, that started to recognize that this art form and this culture was being consumed by much more than just African Americans. 
So a, a lot of what you're talking about, um, the shifts specifically, come about not because of shifts in culture, but because of talent. There's a lot of people who bring their talent to the fore, and that seems to impact culture. I was wondering if you could tell us, who are the, the sort of three or five key figures in tanning? You know, who, who had the biggest impact overall? Well, I, w- I will start very early. If in the book, I speak about Blondie. Blondie was a, a pop artist, punk artist, and she, um, Debbie Harry, and she was culturally curious. Now, without curiosity, there is no innovation. Curiosity leads to innovation, a passion around curiosity. So she would go up to the Bronx and she would hang around uh, Flash, who's a DJ, and Fab Five Freddy, uh, who's a Renaissance man, and wanted to understand what was going on with this hip-hop music. And not only did she go, but she actually came back and recorded a song that had hip-hop in it and put Basquiat and Fab Five Freddy in the video. When hip-hop artists recorded hip-hop songs, the record went, you know, number 40 on the charts. When she put hip-hop in her song, it went to number one. And I felt like she was very important for making the world hear and giving hip-hop some credibility outside of the boundaries of the inner city. Um, I think that Rick Rubin, Rick Rubin, uh, NYU student, started Def Jam with Russell Simmons. I got the pleasure of meeting Rick Rubin on the journey of writing this book. And Rick, for some strange reason, Rick knew to sign a group like Public Enemy, sign the Beastie Boys, make LL Cool J's album, but could produce Johnny Cash and the Red Hot Chili Peppers. I mean, just an unbelievable personality that understood exactly where culture was going. He was the one who thought of making Walk This Way. He took, and he, and he said to me, he said, Steve, I would take the uh, uh, Walk This Way, the drum lick, I mean the, the guitar lick, and they would rap over that. But I told them I didn't want them to do that. I actually wanted them to recite the words and do it in a hip-hop style. I wanted them to take the original Aerosmith words and make that song. And he said, I felt like if I did that, it will close the gap because no one actually understood why hip-hop was penetrating the way it was. And he needed Aerosmith to be the, um, to, to work, he wanted to work with Aerosmith in order to spread the message uh, li- uh, wider and louder. Um, Jay-Z, I think Jay-Z has done a lot uh, uh, for tanning. He stayed very true has told the truth, told about his story, told about his early beginnings, didn't waver from that truth. And he fits into this place where he was so authentic and so honest that rather than try to chase the masses, the masses came to him. And when you get something that pure, the commodity of it is that the masses will come to you because it takes longer to get there, but eventually you get there. And I think that that's a very pure thing and something that has helped uh, propel tanning further. I think a lot of the people that I interviewed, Eminem, I interview Eminem at the end of the book, and Eminem has done a lot because Eminem, when he sold all the records that he sold, he never once did not use the platform to pay uh, homage and recognition to hip hop and what it was and what it stood for. And in fact, a lot of people learned about hip hop and the essence of it and where it comes from and the energy and the soul of it 
through his movie Eight Mile. A lot of people got a lot of education on that. So I think those are a few people that I felt was very important. You know, you, it strikes me you mentioned a fair amount of white people in there. Yeah. Um, when tanning sort of, in the 20th century, when it sort of kicked off, um, and Elvis was a person who really kicked it off, and sort of brought rhythm and blues to the population. Well, there there well, were a lot of African-American artists who were angry about it, and yeah. that anger persisted even through Chuck D in Public Enemy, who rapped yeah. about it. Is that anger still there, or is this... Is commercialism sort of absolved that pain? Well, I'm going to bring it back a little bit. So what Elvis did was nothing more than what everybody else was doing, looking at R&B music or music that was authored by African-Americans and doing their version of it. But because of the sign of the times at the, you know where we were as a country at that time, we weren't, African-Americans weren't getting the recognition for it. But Elvis never truly acknowledged it, which is the reason why there was a problem. I was fortunate enough to have dinner with uh, Sir McCartney, Paul McCartney, uh, two weeks ago. And he told me a story. He said, Steve, we were at the docks in Liverpool, very poor. And the ships would come in and we would try to get the music, buy the music or trade something with uh, uh, the guys who worked on the boat so that we could uh, get new music, American music. It was a phenomenon to us in Liverpool. And we heard the Motown records. And the Beatles, when we started, all we were doing was doing our best rendition of Motown sounds. In fact, when we came to America and we were this big phenomenon, we were shocked that no one actually said that they were doing bad versions of Motown music. He actually acknowledged that and then went on to say that the Rolling Stones did the very similar thing, but they copied the blues. So the acknowledgement of it is all anybody ever wanted, not necessarily. Um, uh, so that's why the, the anger around Elvis. And I don't, think it, I don't think that exists any longer today. I think that, you know, this generation understands that we all share. We all share things with one another. So um, that's cool, right? So one of the things that you talk about, I mean, you just mentioned it there, is credibility. And both in art and in advertising, that's sort of your baseline for success. That in, Just to get over the hump, you have to have credibility. When you were starting out and you were observing these trends in culture and you were working in advertising, you were working in music, what struck you? I mean, what was the discordant note where you thought, oh, my God, that's not credible. Somebody needs to explain to these people how to actually reach this audience. There was a bunch of moments of of just I think everybody's seen it just really bad commercials in, in, in the advent and the growth and explosion of rap you would start to see commercials on television in which it would be like um, stock music with some fake guy rapping on it and they like we checked that box rap is covered next and it was like really really bad and it was it was actually offensive at the exact same time You'd see bad commercials done by African-American agencies portraying African-Americans like it's Soul Train. And between those two things, I felt like, wow, that's a wide gap. I could feel that. <laughs> I mean, you got to do things. In, but the hardest part was actually convincing the Fortune 500 companies that I wanted to work with, that I aspired to work with that there was something missing from their communications and I could feel that. And um, the belief in myself and the fact of the matter is that 
the work that they were doing was never rewarded. That's the best thing about culture, is that you get rejected very quickly. Jimmy talked about Beats by Dre. It doesn't make a difference if they were called Beats by Dre. In five seconds, if those things didn't sound good, no one would care. It has to be, not only could it have the gloss of everything that it has, but it has to definitely be very good and in culture marketing. And, and, and the, you're not rewarded when you fail at that. So over a period of time with the companies failing, they allowed me and the, the information I was bringing to, 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 to actually they give it a shot to put it in market. So what was, I mean, when you were starting out, what was your pitch for translation to Fortune 500 companies? And how has that evolved now? I mean, I imagine it's much easier to get business, not just because you're famous, but because a lot of what you've talked about has become accepted. Yeah. Um, in the beginning, in the beginning, it was rough. Um, a lot of it was because I worked at record companies, they believed that I had access. And I did have access. So a lot of it was using my access and proving that I can get something done uh, by bringing music into um, the fold. I think the biggest moment I had early in, in giving me that level of credibility was when McDonald's launched I'm Loving It in 2004. And they had the mnemonic, da-da-da-da-da. But they were unsure that that mnemonic would actually stick. They were unsure that the tagline, I'm loving it, would actually work. So what I did was, I felt like I could kind of make that work, and I hired Justin Timberlake to make a song called I'm Loving It. And he made the hook, the da-da-da-da-da. That was terrible. But <laughs> that was really bad. That was bad. Yeah, I yeah. know, I know. Yeah. <laughs> you don't have to rub I'm it. I'm not going to do it. I'm I, just going to say okay, it was bad. Got it. Yeah. <laughs> Next. So... When we put the song out, and the song charted, and the video went to number two on TRL, and it was a big deal, and Justin Timberlake, that gave McDonald's the confidence to put out that campaign, knowing that it already had been introduced to culture previously through Justin Timberlake. And I think after I got through that moment is when um, I proved myself, and I got a shot to be heard again. And so it's gotten easier. Yeah, it's, got, it's, gotten, it's gotten a lot easier. I mean, you still have naysayers because, again, you got, anytime there's a changing of the guard in anything, in your household, in, in business, there's always going to be the resistance where the guy, you know, does not want to hand over the keys to the car, right? So you still have these older agencies that are been around for 50 and 60 years and have these traditional points of views, and they have their friends and people they've worked with for a long time in those companies, and they're just resisting everything you're saying because that's how they feel today. It has nothing to do with any factual information surrounding your theories or thoughts. And you still have to break through that. But um, as sales are coming in and, and, and as people do need and have to shift their point of view because they're losing market share, um, it gives agencies like mine a much more... Uh, a fair opportunity at getting a seat at the table. And I always said, just to go one step further, I never wanted a seat at the table as an African-American agency. That was never the point that I wanted to do. Because I felt like, as we talk about tanning, that that also has to shift. That, you know, 
African-American agencies just getting business because they're African-American, that also is not necessary anymore either. Um, I think that, you know, I wanted to set an example by building um, one of the biggest agencies by an African-American that was considered a general market agency. So one of the things about translation is that um, it's perched very much at this nexus of business and the zeitgeist, which is you. I mean, that's, that's sort of your specific talent. When a Fortune 500 company comes to translation, how much of you do they get? And if you delegate, how do you go about finding people who have the same balance of skills? Well, we, everyone we hire now, because it's everyone we hire now, because there was a time where I didn't get that. I mean, I took very, you know, as an entrepreneur, I'm focused on the vision of building and the day-to-day aspects of building a team and understanding what drives and motivates a team. It took a lot of hard knocks to get to that point. So let me just start with that. What we do now is uh, to get a job at the company, we ask you what your major is and what your minor. And your minor has to be something that you practice that's in culture and we incorporate it inside the company. So it's something that, so if you're a DJ or if you are a photographer or whatever it is, we actually use that skill set within the organization to help our communications and ideation sessions. And I think that that's a very important, per, a very important aspect of how we hire now to make sure that we have people that have ideas outside of their day-to-day sort of major, what they went to college for, with whatever they do as a consumer, whatever they do as a hobby, that we incorporate it in our communications and ideation sessions. So, uh, you know, one of the things I really enjoyed about the book is in your very Steve Stout way, uh, you say some rather controversial things with some sort of brevity and style. I just want to ask you about a few of them. One of them is that you say color is no longer the determining factor in how people think. I mean, that's a very broad statement. Are you certain of that? I mean, are there no commercial stereotypes that abide at all? And if so, has tanning really replaced it? Yeah. Yeah, I, I, I believe very firmly that no longer does your ethnicity determine what drives you culturally. Period. So therefore, you cannot look at somebody, determine their ethnicity, and then predetermine what they're going to like or not like. And that's a phenomenon that has taken place in our generation and that the advertising community has to understand. It's in the advertising community's best interest to keep people in boxes, and I will tell you why. Because that's the way you split up media money, right? African-American, 18 to 24, white, 18 to 24, 24 to 36, young families, younger. They come up with all of these boxes, so therefore that's how you move media money around. But unfortunately, those boxes have broken down, and media has not caught up to the speed in which those boxes are broken down. So that's why I stand behind that statement, because I've seen, experienced, and marketed knowing that phenomenon has taken place and that most of my peers and counterparts who come from marketing in the 80s have, or 90s have not paid attention to that because it wasn't in their best interest to understand it. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to ask you something that I hope you'll explain then because you also write, and, and again, it's, it's not necessarily mutually exclusive, but you say that African Americans are the best consumers in the world. Yeah. So how are those two things not discordant? I'll tell you why. I was hoping you would. (laughs) African-American consumers are the best consumers in the world 
because they consume product, products that aren't marketed to them. And everybody knows that. So you spend no money on African Americans and yet they still buy the product. So there's African American women buying beauty products in which there's no African American woman being represented on the box. Why are you buying products with a woman with blonde hair on the box who looks like Suzanne Summers on the box? Because there is no, because there's not enough products in the marketplace that represents me. If every product on the market had African Americans on it, I'm sure you wouldn't have the same consumption by Caucasians. Makes sense. <laughs> so, I was going to ask you next. I mean, is there an obverse to tanning? Is there such a thing as lightening as we sort of blend? Well, look, look. Let's we can get into some other. I mean, I think that. At the same, at the same notion, um, you got African American women uh, putting weaves in their hair, making their hair blonde. I think that came from uh, something that you know came from Caucasian culture. You know, you see uh, white women years ago. You know, it was it, it, having an ass was associated with being fat. Having an ass right now is a, like a sign of beauty. You know collagen in their lips big lips was something wrong i mean i think the definition the definition of beauty has evolved as well and what people will accept and not accept so i think there has been some cultural sharing i think jennifer lopez has done a lot you know bringing her, her sensibilities uh as a latina to the to the to the beauty category so i think that there has been a lot of sharing of cultures as i've said and i call it tanning because of the blend lightning you know we we could use that term if you want to Coin it. I'm, I'm not trying to coin it and write okay, a book. Cool. That's taken right, care good. of. All right, good. Um, I wonder if you could riff just a little bit about um, how President Obama has benefited from tanning and how you think that his, as he prepares for another campaign, how th his campaign is sort of aware of it, used it, benefited from it, or not benefited from it. Okay. So as a result of... African-American culture, hip-hop culture, doing a lot to bring together a generation through seeing things through a very similar lens. You got a 18 to 24-year-olds who grew up never looking at African-Americans or looking at each other, defining each other through this color. So when an African-American runs for president, they were the first generation that said, I just want to hire the best man for the job. I'm not going to not or disqualify him because he's an African-American. I think that the generation before that would have disqualified him just because he was an African-American. But because this generation came up not seeing it that way, they gave him an equal opportunity to be the president of the United States. I think that his message resonated with the youth of America, and the youth of America had no problem with a black man being president. So I think he benefited from the fact that there was cultural sharing going on that helped us understand each other much better, and that gave him his votes. So, I mean, one of the, the tenets of tanning is that you're speaking to multiple audiences. You call it polyethnic with one voice. And I wonder if you think that he does that effectively or if that as president it's just too hard, that you've got to speak to different constituencies. Well, you have to speak to different constituencies, but I think there's a large enough demographic of people who have now jumped over the fence of seeing it in these boxes that, 
you can speak to core the, the essence of of issues that speak to everybody. You don't have to isolate the issues anymore, like the African American message versus the Caucasian message versus the Hispanic and the Asian uh, message. I think once you speak to a, a level of unity, and you speak to a level of, and common needs, and I think that's all people really want to discuss and talk about anyway is. What, do, what issues do we all share in that affect us all equally? And if you deal with those issues or speak to those issues, then I think that that's what was successful for him. We all wanted hope, and we all wanted change. And that had nothing to do with anything around color. That had something to do with human sensibility. So what tanning really is about is a mixture of sort of culture and demography. And as we go through the next coming years, at a certain point, is it... Is it going to be a process that gets completed? And if so, what happens? What comes next? Well, I think it's going to take, you know, again, we have, it's, it's, there's, we're talking about generational shift, generational shift, um, and, you know, of creating this tanned mental complexion. And I don't, I don't know what comes next. Hopefully what comes next is that we all take heed to what's taking place right now and there's a certain level of equality and humility with how we speak and deal with one another um, and all of the prejudices are abolished as a result of that. And I think that if we get to that place where I see the trajectory going, then this would be a better you know, universe to live in. So last question I'm going to ask before we open it up to everybody. Um, one of my favorite parts of the book is when you sort of have your eureka moment about uh, tanning. Um, which is, I believe, in an X, the French mountain town, um, when you're walking around. Can yeah. you tell that story for everybody? So this is so I'm in uh, I'm in France, um, Ez, which is a very old town in France, and I'm walking around, and it's like you know the whole thing is set up when you're walking around. It's like 18 blah 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 blah, 1860 this and that, and it looks like that, right? Guys on the street playing bocce and the whole deal. So I'm walking in this art galleries and art galleries and it's all rustic things and the 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 um, the hotel uh, restaurant that I was staying in has Picassos painted on the wall because he used to stay there uh, and that's what he did for, for for housing was paint on the wall so you can't even remove it right so I'm walking all rustic all rustic and then there's a jewelry store and I look up and it's called Bling. And I'm like, this is the same bling that Little Wayne made up a kid f- from the housing projects of New Orleans 15 years ago, and now it's the name of a jewelry store in France. Look how far we've come in as a community. Cool. Let's uh, open it up to folks in the audience. All right, we got a question far left. Inside your book, you state that um, you view hip-hop as not only a culture but a religion. Can you elaborate on that more? So, I speak to the fact that for something to qualify as a religion, it has certain, it checks certain boxes, and then people call it a religion, right? Forget the godly aspect of religion, but the boxes that it, ch- uh, that it checks to be called a religion. And hip-hop did very similar things, the culture around it. It has hierarchy, it has code, it has uh, uniform. It has a sensibility of there's an, or, there's an authentic and a belief system 
in it that makes something more authentic than not. Um, and I felt like when I laid out what, what you use to define a religion and what hip-hop culture had done, that I found similarities in the boxes that it checked. Not ever comparing it to a religion, but that it had the same unique qualities to qualify as a religion. How you doing? Hey. As a college student um, majoring in public relations and advertising, what kind of advice or tips do you have as I venture into the world of marketing? Well, um, I would say you read the book, but that's you have the book in your hand, so you're going to do that. You don't need me to tell you that. Um, you know, when you have an idea and the idea gets rejected by most people immediately, that's when you know you have a great idea. And you gotta get comfortable with that. That's the hardest lesson to learn as an entrepreneur, as a young executive, that your right is probably right, but most people are gonna say it's wrong because people do not like change. Even if something's not working, they'd rather keep it the same. And a lot of great talent fall for that trick right there, that human issue of not wanting change and therefore convert and turn into the average person or have an average point of view. So if you have a strong belief and passion and there's strong rationale and logic behind your thought, do not let anybody let you waver from that belief. Back row. All right. Um, my question is two and one. Uh, my first question is, uh, is there now a target audience? Do you can, as a advertising, can you have a target audience? And number two, um, you're saying that African-Americans aren't advertise, you know, like consumers. Is there a thing as like maybe a status code whereby some advertisers want to have certain status of what you're doing so it doesn't matter to them what money they are making or what it is but it kind of people that is getting their product and when african-americans go to get it though they they are getting the product what do that mean all right i will say that i am not crystal clear on your second question um to answer your first question yeah there is target marketing um, and I'm not saying that because of the, uh, the tanning phenomenon that we're discussing, that there's not a such thing as a target market. Um, Tyler Perry, for instance, the filmmaker, he has a target market. He specifically speaks to African Americans and makes work that specifically speaks to African Americans, period. There's no sensibilities around it that allow other people to get in. But he wants it that way. And there's nothing wrong with that as a business. However, if you believe that you can speak to a 20-year-old and you want to sell massive product and you think that you, you have to uh, 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 speak, to, if you want to get all 20-year-olds and you don't allow for African-American culture, uh, Caucasian culture to all work and live together as one thing, then you will fail miserably at trying to accomplish that goal. 
So you can segment, but if you're trying to get mass population, you have to include sensibilities of both of those cultures. Right in the front. Good evening. Hey. <laughs> uh, there's always been a notion in the African-American community of a glass ceiling. In your opinion, has that glass ceiling fully opened for us? Well, you know, I, I can't even fathom that there's a glass ceiling when the president of the United States is an African-American, right? So I think the, there was, the belief in that there was no glass ceiling, right? You could have been chasing it down, believing that. But the fact that there's now a president of the United States that's African-American should provide enough hope and inspiration for you to know or for one to know that the glass ceiling is completely removed. And it's really about the quality of the work that you're doing, the quality of how you, you know, handle yourself and, 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 and treat others around you. And if you keep doing that with a certain level of consistency and excellence, that you can be anything that you want to be, you can accomplish and go as far as you want. I, I really believe that. All right, we got a question in the back center. How you doing? Hey. Um, first, I'd like to uh, thank you for coming out here and being a, a great influence to not only African Americans, but uh, everybody in the marketing influence and also um, worldwide, you know, and just in culture and bridging that gap. Um, thank you. One article I read you had, uh, I believe it was in Vibe, or maybe like 2004 or three, and it was uh, Your Secrets to Success. And it had quotes like, uh, it was like 10 quotes. And then one of them was like, learn the, the pain of hard work and never... Falling in love with the pain of hard work. Exactly, exactly. That's it right there. And uh, return every phone call. And that's something that's uh, lived with me to this day. And also that I've been living by. So I want to thank you for that. Well, my question is, uh, what was your biggest failure and how did you learn from it? Failure. When I was a record executive, um, the biggest failure I had as a record executive was that I did not sign Alicia Keys. Um, and I wasn't curious enough to know that the music she played me, that she played the piano. So I usually, a guy that searches under everything, because you never know where you're going to find success. And I heard the music, and I didn't ask her if she played the music, because had I seen her with the piano, it's a whole different act than when she's not with the piano. And um, that was a failure. And how I learned from that was, okay. hey, hey, hey. How I learned from that was I decided that I'm always going to go one step further in asking the tough question or uh, looking for the next thing because you only get one shot at signing Alicia Keys, right? So you never know where greatness is gonna come, so it's worth putting the effort in to peel back the next layer in order to make sure that you're making the best decision. That's tough to admit, man. I mean, seriously, you guys are probably looking at me like, oh, his credibility's going, he missed Alicia Keys. <laughs> you know, you see a lot of things and you, and, and you miss it, you win some, you lose some. I've asked Rick Rubin, I said, Rick Rubin, you started Def Jam. You could have signed everybody. You had a monopoly on the art form. How did you miss so many of the great artists? 
Why did you not sign Rakim? Why did you not sign Big Daddy Kane? Why did you? And I said, to him, what was your biggest miss? He said, the biggest miss was Fresh Prince, Will Smith. I said, Def Jam Records? You wanted to sign Will Smith? You had Public Enemy? You had the Beastie Boys? You had L Cool J? You had... Why would you want to sign Will Smith? He said, because he was honest. I said, tell me what happened. He said, well, his first record, on parents just don't understand, the opening line was that he was walking down the street and got punched in the eye, and he didn't know why. And Russell was like, rappers don't diss themselves. Disqualify him. <laughs> and Rick was like, if he really went through that and is willing to say that, that means there's a lot of people who went through that, and that's honest. And, of course, we know who Will Smith is, the biggest movie star in the world today. So um, you do miss some things. So if Rick Rubin could miss it, I could miss Alicia Keys. I'm fine. We have time for one last question. All right, in the back left. Uh, first off, congratulations on your sellouts. This is the last down. question, so yeah. you've got to make this one good. Because oh, yeah. everybody... They want, to know why pretty, you got, they want to know why you got the last question. I raised my hand, right? There's a lot of hands raised, but go ahead. It's very simple. Um, who inspires you, past and present? That shifted. You know, early on, I was always, you know, I would have said, you know, great business leaders. You know, I would look at a archetype CEO and say, oh, one day I want to be him, you know, and, and what he does is inspirational. And then I realized that as I got older, that my inspiration past uh, is Muhammad Ali. Muhammad Ali has definitely been an inspiration for me because what he stood for at a time when he didn't have to. Um, and what inspired me, what inspired me going forward every day is, you know, there's a lot of, um, you know, coming from the advertising business and the record business, and I got a chance, fortunate enough to be in a lot of rooms and see a lot of different things, so many things. And I feel like um, because I was blessed to have those experiences, that I have an obligation to share that with the world. And what's inspiring me uh, going forward is the opportunity of tomorrow. And I think about that all the time. What could I do to take my experiences and share that with the world to make a better tomorrow? That, that wakes me up in the morning. Thanks, everybody. Thanks, Steve. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you again to Steve Stout. The book, The Tanning of America, if you don't have it, you can get it right now, literally right now in the iBook store. It's available. Thank you guys so much for coming. We hope you enjoyed yourselves tonight, and we hope to see you again at the next one. Take care. Have a wonderful evening.